Welcome to Give and Take, where yours truly, Scott Jones, interviews artists, activists, authors, and a wide array of other thought leaders that help make our world the interesting place it is. My guest today is Jeffrey Pugh. He's a professor of religion at Elon College. And if you didn't know, if you're doing the New York Times crossword puzzle and you're looking for a four-letter college in North Carolina, it's always Elon College. He's the author most recently of The End Times, Theology After You've Been Left Behind, which appeared in the Homebrewed Christianity publication series. But I want to talk to him about a previously written book, Religionless Christianity, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Troubled Times. I give you Jeffrey Pugh. Jeffrey, welcome to the podcast. I've talked to you once before. and It was crazy. Exactly. And you helped me with all my end times anxiety. And now, though, I promise... I'm rethinking it all right now. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, there's been some... uh, I don't know if it's apocalyptic, but I mean, uh, something. I'm I'm glued to the Twitter machine, unfortunately. So you have written a fabulous book. This is why I wanted to have you on again called Religionless Christianity, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Troubled Times. Not that there's anything troubling about our times right now, but if there were, what might Bonhoeffer have to say to us, my friend? Uh, you know, especially uh, because it's interesting in this age where we need probably civic institutions, we're in an age of institutional skepticism mm-hmm. and suspicion. And, and Bonhoeffer has this great phrase, right? Religionless Christianity, which... A lot has been, of ink has been spilled on. And so how would this help us uh, to navigate our times today? Okay, well, let me just back up for a second and say that when we come to Bonhoeffer, what makes it so difficult is that so many people employ Bonhoeffer for their own particular theologies and often their own ideologies, yeah, you kind of lay out in the intro to your book, it's basically he's like a theological Rorschach test. He is. You, you kind of see what you want in him sometimes because he's so robust. He is. So so people that killed um, abortion doctors um, used him to justify their behavior, and, and uh, people on the left used Bonhoeffer to justify their views. But the fact of the matter is, is that Bonhoeffer sort of um, escapes the kind of theological straitjackets that we want to impose on him because he himself is never consistent. Um, he toggles back and forth between something like pacifism and, and assassination. But, but let me sort of get to your I mean, point. I mean, really, who, do, who doesn't? Really? I know, right? At the, end, <laughs> at the end of the day, we're all just bouncing back and forth between those poles. But, um, but, but Bonhoeffer can be instructive for us because there are some things that were going on that he was struggling with that we also struggle with in our age. Now, it's not the Shoah. Um, we're not dealing with that. And I don't want to make light of the fact that, you know, the Holocaust is an entirely other order of evil. But before that, um, there were structures and political structures in play in Germany that allowed the Holocaust to take place. And that's a complex topic. But the fact of the matter is, is that when we come to Bonhoeffer, one of the reasons that he's been so embraced over the years and that so many people want to claim him is that he was one of the few people who were right. 
Um, he was one of the few people that saw the danger of the National Socialists, saw the danger specifically of Hitler, um, and started sort of jumping up and down and pointing it out the minute that Hitler came to power, before Hitler came to power. Um, so when we think about how our sort of relationship to structures like states, our economies, or uh, any of these structures go, Bonhoeffer can be instructive for us in the fact that he's struggling and he struggled with the very same thing. Now, let me just say one more thing and then you can jump in. There are two approaches to Bonhoeffer uh, that that sort of seem to, you know, uh, operate as the poles around which we, we do. One is the hermeneutical approach and the other is the exegetical approach. So the exegetical approach is more like, well, what did Bonhoeffer say? What did he mean? Um, drilling down deep into, you know, how the German is used, so to speak. The hermeneutical approach, in some senses, is takes doesn't want to do violence to the exegetical approach, but it wants to extend it to ask, what are the questions? What are the issues? What are the concerns that Bonhoeffer is dealing with? that might have some resonance for where we are in our lives today. And, um, and, and when people make that move, the exegetical people become very nervous because they say, there's no way that you can translate what Bonhoeffer is dealing with in the 30s and 40s into what we're dealing with now in the 2017. You can't, you can't make that translation. And they're right in that it's not the same thing, but I also think they're wrong in the fact that no matter who it is, no matter where in history it is, we have used the past to inform the present. Yeah, and isn't like sort of you know also as you frame lay that framework out, isn't it's almost the way we treat a personal relationship? Like somebody said, well, they said that, but then if you know the person well, it's a friend or a family member or a beloved colleague. We say, yeah, but you need to understand not just what they said, but what they mean, right? Because we oftentimes have to qualify all the time, even with people we know well. Yeah. Like, I said this, but I meant this. Yeah. Well, well, it happens to our president all the time. I mean, you know. <laughs> well, usually right. it's Kelly and Conway, though. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, and, and, and is, it, is there an invitation in Bonhoeffer to maybe um, get a new cartography or remap some theological categories? One of the things I like about your book is you do talk about how we don't necessarily have the right theological framework to to make sense of Bonhoeffer because he kind of defies our categories. But isn't is that an invitation to reinvent our categories a little bit in North America? Well, I mean, you know, the, one of the things about theology that has been taking place since Bonhoeffer uh, was um, executed is that theological categories, by and large, have undergone vast revision. Um from the moment that the death of God theologians, I think, misappropriated Bonhoeffer to speak about the death of God in certain ways, Altizer, Hamilton, you know, those guys, when the whole, I guess it was Time magazine or Newsweek magazine had the Is God Dead sort of cover. I was even alive then. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think that they misappropriated him, but there was a kind of radical theology that emerges from them. Um, that in some senses still goes on today, a theology that helps us to understand that um, we're very contextual, we're very driven by social location. The the ways that we do theology are, are greatly informed by 
the position that we occupy. And I'm not sure that was as clear in the consciousness of the theologian in Bonhoeffer's day as it is today. Bonhoeffer anticipates this in letters and papers from prison. He anticipates the sort of contextual move um, and, and in some senses anticipates the collapse of a type of Christian theology um, for, you know, for a more critical, reflective um, theological perspective. And I do think that there are resources within Bonhoeffer's writings. And I, for me, it's especially from letters and papers from prison, where I find sort of the seeds of um, some very powerful theological themes coming forth that we can use today to talk about theology in a different key or in a different register. Um, and that does mean actually, too, uh, uh, going back and looking at the tradition in a different way. And Bonhoeffer, you know, you have a chapter in your book called Living uh, in the World of the Age to Come. Right? Yeah. Just, yeah. And, and so could, could you say a little bit about that, like this world come of age? And I mean, because some of Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer, right, his thoughts about religionless Christianity and people, again, take that to mean a lot of different things. Uh, and But something about it is the world's come of age in a way, you know, in the sort of Enlightenment, post-Enlightenment era that he thinks we've got to rethink some things. Yeah. Profoundly. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, you know, I mean. How do we do that? Yeah. So <laughs> good question. I mean, when he when he's writing from his prison cell and he's exploring these themes of come of age and he's using writers like Hugo Grotius, Grotius and and um, medieval writers and other writers, um, he is sort of trying to unspool how humankind has developed uh, its intellectual world in such a way that it has it has created its structures. It has created the structures of government or the state. It's created the structures of economies. It's even created the structures of religion. Um, but it's created these structures increasingly under the influence of enlightenment rationality, under the influence of a kind of rationality that is pragmatic, um, material, and efficient uh, with its causality, and understands the world as both within our power to construct um, and able to be constructed without the working hypothesis of God. Uh, and Bonhoeffer said, this is not a bad thing. This is not a thing that Christians, you know, often Christians confronted with this idea will go, oh, we need to get back to, you know, ooh, let's do the Benedict option, um, you know, because, you know, the Enlightenment has made us so bad. Um, but Bonhoeffer says the coming of age of the world is a good thing. It's a positive thing because now things can be faced more clearly than when we were using God as the justification and legitimation of our social structures. We don't do that anymore. And I'm glad we don't. Bonhoeffer, you know, Bonhoeffer said that, you know, when we, when we do away, when we peel away that sort of divine justification or legitimation for social structure, we're less inclined to be seduced by the lure of civil religion. We're less inclined to be seduced by the idol of nationalism. Um, don't tell that to Franklin Graham uh, or Jerry Falwell <laughs> Jr., but, well, but— I talk to those guys all the time. So. But that's—I but that, mean, 
And, and God knows I'll be, I'll be happy to, to meet them anywhere at any time to say they are basically following idols. Bonhoeffer, I think, would agree with this. Now, this is where the religious rights and employment of Bonhoeffer, you know, would start to shriek with hair on fire and say, you're reading him wrongly. If I'm right about this, what Bonhoeffer says is that the godlessness of the world is actually closer to God than the godliness of the world before, because now we're looking at things honestly um, and we're not using self-righteous justification to legitimate ourselves and project onto God what it is that we're doing. Can I read you something from Paul Zoll, our mutual friend David Zoll's father? Yes. This is from his short systematic theology, which is wonderful. He says, uh, we approach here what, he says, Christians live rather in the presence of Christ's absence. What does it mean to live in the presence of his absence? He says he ascended Christ. He says, we approach here what Dietrich Bonhoeffer probably intended by the phrase of religionless Christianity. Although Bonhoeffer saw this as a new development in the history of the church, whereas it has in underlying reality been in the world or with the world since the bodily departure of Jesus on Ascension Day. We are also not too far from what Luther meant by the phrase Deus absconditus, Mm -hmm. or concealed God. Bonhoeffer saw Christians as needing to live in a new way because modern thinking had pushed out or superseded objective ideas about God. The forms of religion, for example, the objectifying mediators we have surveyed, cannot withstand the scrutiny and criticism of the modern. So they need to go better. They need to be made penultimate rather than... And ultimate. And he goes on to say, actually, that this is, you know, Luther, again, we, this is biblical. These ideas are biblical, the trappings of kind of religiosity versus the real power of the gospel, um, the spiritual power. So is that, is Zoll on to something there? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think he is. I think he reads Bonhoeffer correctly. Um, but, but when we talk about presence and absence, um, I think we have to be careful about, about the way that we use those words, because For some people, absence means the ontological absence. Right, right, right. Um, Not just an epistemological absence, not just an absence of of, um, the ability to grasp, the ability to to totally, uh, in some ways, even control the object of our thought. I, I don't think that Christ is ontologically absent to us in the way that many people think. Ontologically, Christ is present at the table. Ontologically, Christ is present in the community. Bonhoeffer never saw Christ as absent um, in the way that that the, the the reality of God wasn't there, but in that we make a certain constituent understanding about what transcendence of God means and what is happening in concrete earthly life. I think that constituent notion that the presence of God is is to be found. Oh, let's see, that the, 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 the constituent sort of connection between um, act uh, and and being, or or ontology and or, you know, ontic and noetic, knowing and, and being. That that presence is not available to us. Right. So in the time between the times of Christ's advents, right? Like, I mean, I think what Paul's all getting at is in the time between Christ's first coming and ascension and the return. I think he's thinking we'll get nervous and then say, well, we need something to hold on to, like a theological security. So if you're Roman Catholic, maybe it's the, it's the Pope. 
or you know, or a certain kind of understanding of the real presence. If you're Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, it's the great tradition. If you're fundamentalist, maybe it's a certain kind of positivist view of inerrancy. Yeah. If you're Pentecostal, maybe it's the second birth of the, you know through the Spirit. There's these anthropological anchors that when we get nervous, we cling to instead yeah. of faith in Christ alone by faith, made present by faith. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's a good one, right? And and so when Bonhoeffer is talking about the new form of the church, um, when he's talking in letters and papers from prison about how the 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 traditional form of the church was dead, um, he had seen its monumental moral and ethical collapse in the face of the Nazis. Um, he he says maybe it's that we need to go back and reclaim the arcane disciplines. And, you know, there was always a lot of discussion around Bonhoeffer circles about, well, what are the arcane disciplines and how do we reclaim them? In a certain sense, Bonhoeffer is saying that there and he's he's echoed in this way by certain contemporary theologians. Bonhoeffer is saying that there's a set of practices. um, There's a community of practices uh, that that we enter into as people of faith. Um, and, and some of these practices are prayer, uh, Eucharist, um, community, um, the sort of ancient practices of the church that will actually end up creating the kind of community that sustains us. And I actually don't think this is the same thing that, that um, Rod Dreher, uh, I hope that's the way his mother says his last name, um, <laughs> has in the notion of the, of the Benedict Option. But but there's a there's a sort of a notion in Bonhoeffer where he says we are formed in a certain way and and we're not going to be formed necessarily by our doctrine of Scripture. That's inerrant. We're not going to be informed by even our doctrine of Trinity. We're going to be informed by the narratives that we embrace and the practices and the habits that we embody um, in response to that narrative. It's interesting, too. Like I, I wrote this piece for Mockingbird a couple months ago called the Zacchaeus Option. It was sponsored, it was uh, inspired by a guy named Tomas Halik, who was a Czech priest, became a priest before Czechoslovakia, before the fall of the Iron Curtain. And, you know, Halik talks about his ministry. He was a secret priest for a while, and then he was a psychoanalyst too, but as uh, as drawn to the Zacchaeuses of the world, as those who remain far off, but kind of want to draw near. Yeah, yeah. I look at, I look at Bonhoeffer as that kind of figure, like, like as a heart for the Zacchaeuses, you know, for the... In the world come of age, people that though are, are still attracted to faith, and yet some of the trappings of, of religiosity keep them away. Well, you know, if we look at his life, you know, and we think about it in the terms of um, the trajectory of his life, he ended it with the Zacchaeuses of the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, in, in, in the end, his only community was the conspiracy. Mm-hmm. You know, a few isolated church members and stuff, but by the time Bonhoeffer gets into prison in Teagle, you know, the confessing church was never this great heroic thing that overcame. I mean, they collapsed in the face of institutional um, maintenance. They collapsed, you know, against the sort of onslaught of Hitler. This is authoritarian regimes um, have a way of collapsing the strongest institutions. And the church collapsed uh, under that, even the one that we think is, is the most um, uh, most resistant, but but Bonhoeffer in the end he is with the community of Zacchaeuses. He's with the community of those who have decided to take upon themselves the responsibility 
um, to do something about Hitler and to take upon themselves the guilt of the nation. Um, that's a tough place to be uh, because they're not making any claim to I'm doing this for God. They're not making any claim of I'm doing this for faith. They are actually, you know, some of them, were, the majority of them say we're making the claim that um, we're doing this for the good of our nation. They're not even making the claim they're doing it for the Jews. I mean, let's let's not, you know, let, let's not be um, untruthful about the fact that the resistance was not the resistance um, for Jewish people. It was not they were the, the, the sort of conspiracy was meant to restore Germany. They were worried about the fact that Hitler had driven it into a ditch. But I think that there were some, like Bonhoeffer, who did see and had the information about what was happening to the Jewish community that did enter into the conspiracy with the hope that they would save human lives by their behavior, their actions. So, I mean, you know, in some ways he actually ends, you know, his his life ends with the community of those who were so-called far off and mm-hmm. and and. And Bonhoeffer realized that that was that was who his community was. Those were the ones that would support him. You know, it's interesting. Like, there's this term. You know, there's this you, you know ubiquitous term now, the nuns, right? Like, yeah, you know, people that are non-observant, part of any, not part of any religious tradition, but they tend to not be atheists. I mean, most of them aren't. Like, they're just not connected. And, and then there's this subset within them called the Duns, right? And these are people that identify as Christians, but just don't want anything to do with the church. But it sounds like what you're saying is Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity, for, to be crass, it's almost like we do the practice, but with a bit of a wink of, and a nod in that we know that we can't make them something more than a spiritual, from a position of spiritual poverty. Like we, we do them not like something we can control, but as we go to them, as like beggars looking for bread. Is that kind of the, is that kind of the ecclesiology that comes out of your reading of religionless Christianity and Bonhoeffer? Um, I'm, I'm not sure about that. Um, I think Bonhoeffer was ready to do away with all institutional forms of the church as he knew it. He, he says clearly in letters and papers from prison at the end, church should sell all of its buildings, give all of its money to the poor and exist within communities. Now that said, I think his, his, he doesn't, he doesn't want to become Anabaptist in that move. Right, right. Uh, you know, he he wants to maintain those sort of arcane disciplines that have shaped the identity of the church. Like there's still Eucharistic assemblies for him, and there's, people are there's, still reading the Bible, and there's abs- proclamation. Absolutely, there's still there's still all of the the marks of that present. Let me just say, you know, when you start off on the nuns and the duns, one of the things that I keep coming back to about Bonhoeffer, and that I've really appreciated increasingly over the years is that Bonhoeffer was very clear about the fact that we cannot stand against things like tyranny. We cannot stand against things that would seek to control and dominate our lives by ourselves. Um, So many people think Christianity is about me and Jesus. Bonhoeffer said the, the whole thing of personal salvation was not important. What was important was faithfulness to God. And he said, that is a hard thing to pull off. In the face of the kind of structures that we deal with um, on a day-to-day basis, that's a hard thing to pull off without a community that has disciplined uh, itself in a certain way to be resistant. 
Um, and so when those, the nuns and the duns and stuff, when I, you know, I, I teach them um, every day in my classes. And what I'm convinced about is that they haven't seen any, they haven't seen much that is authentic about the community of faith. How and when, do undergrad, how do undergrads in your classes react to Bonhoeffer when they read it? Well, they always admire him, right? I mean, you know, they, 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 I'm actually going to teach a class in Christians and Nazis in the fall. So I'll, we can come back. Maybe I can answer this question better, but <laughs> in, in, in the past, um, they, they've always admired Bonhoeffer um, for being one of the few people that, that stood up. I'm not sure they entirely understand him. I'm not sure they entirely understand the, um, the ramifications and maybe some of that's the fault of their teacher, but but they do admire him. Um, I'm not sure that they want to emulate him. Um, I'm not sure they want to take up the cross to the extent that Bonhoeffer sort of engages in a theology of the cross, an embodied theology of the cross. Um, but they do admire him. They do appreciate the fact that he was there and, and that there was something about him that was more discerning than the rest of his culture. I am blown away at the fact that he, you know, Bonhoeffer was before the war, right, in Union Seminary in New York City, and he went back. Yeah, uh, he he went back into. I mean that that is mind blowing to me. That's the one. That's the one that gets them right. He comes. He I think it's June of nineteen thirty nine. He comes to. He flees Germany and comes to Union, and he's there less than a month. In July, he's back on the boat to Germany. And he says, um, I, I think it's Niebuhr tries to get him to, to not go. And he says, I, I cannot, um, unless I stand with my people in their moment of need, I, I, I have, you know, I, I can't, I'm, I'm trying to think now, I'm trying to, I can't remember the exact quote, but he says, I, I can't help rebuild Germany unless I'm there in their moment of need. Right. He would um, lose his credibility in, in the aftermath, right? You know, but I think it was more than he would lose his credibility. I think it was... These are my people. I mean, I really do think. I mean, he agonized over this. You know, if it was a matter of credibility, I don't think that would have been enough of a motivation. But it was the solidarity with the German people, I think. Um, And, you know, those he knew. Um, The seminarians that he had taught uh, at Finkenwald, uh, his family, you know, I mean, all of these people that he loved and cared about. I think he went back, you know, for their sakes. And it it does actually sort of speak to whatever faults and flaws we may find within Bonhoeffer. Um, That's one of the most powerful moral moves that he makes in his life because he knows what waits him. He knows what's there. This is like St. Paul, right? I would rather that I be cut off and my whole, my, all my countrymen be saved kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's this sense of, of really, yeah, solidarity with and a love. Mm-hmm. So Bonhoeffer is one. Of, okay, I don't know how many people were students of uh, Niebuhr, Tillich, and in some ways Bart. I mean, you know, right? Like, I mean, that's an amazing theological pedigree or uh, confluence of uh, of influences on one person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Where do you see those strains in him? Like, where are the kind of, how do you see the... the, the oh, God, I don't know. That's a, uh, well, you know, I mean, he's attracted to Bart. I mean, I came to Bonhoeffer through Bart. Um, when I was in graduate school, I was studying uh, Bart's Christology, uh, which is what I did my dissertation on. So 
you know, I sort of, I, I, I didn't do Bonhoeffer as a graduate student. I, I came to Bonhoeffer sort of as an ancillary figure to my study of, of Bart. And Bonhoeffer and Bart had a, you know, interesting history. You know, at some point, Bonhoeffer very much appreciates his sort of radical dialecticism, you know, the sort of the notion of God is the holy other, and we must sort of remove this constituent connection between culture and Christ. Um, and so he appreciates that, but he comes on, he later on becomes critical, you know, of, of Bonhoeffer. Bart, I think, was always maybe a little suspicious there at one point of Bonhoeffer. Why are you back in Germany? Why are you working for German intelligence? You know, are you really a spy? I mean, you know, there's, but, but they, I think they came to a sort of understanding of, of each person's role in that moment. Um, Niebuhr, I can't say I, 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 you would have to ask somebody that that's more ingrained in the ethics of Bonhoeffer than I am about the role of Niebuhr in his life. Um, and Tillich, I, I don't know anything about Tillich and, and uh, Bonhoeffer, I have to say. That connection is not, not I'm sure it's been um, studied, but... Every graduate student listening to this, this is a dissertation topic. Too. It, it it's probably it, not mine. It's probably not very well mine. It probably is. I mean, it may well be mine, but that that's not the sort of area that I've been working in. And what Bart and Bonhoeffer shared, right, was this kind of reconnection to the strange new world of the Bible. I mean, I, I like I, some of the stuff I love best in Bonhoeffer, or when he's doing theological exegesis. I mean, mm-hmm. he's just. He's a great reader of the Bible mm-hmm. in any age. I mean, I mm-hmm. think he's one of the best in the tradition. Yeah, the creation and fall. Um, I think I think that's the one. Was I mean this interesting sort of treatment of Genesis? Um, yeah, it's fabulous and a short read. I mean, it, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, and and when you look at things like his sermons in Barcelona, you know, I mean, he he does have a kind of unique. Um, hermeneutic and a unique approach um, to the text. Now you're right in the fact that he and and um, he and Bart are both looking at the text, and they are both, in their own way, attacking the sort of domestication of that text by by liberal scholastics, by by the liberal sort of understanding of those texts that you find in in the life of Jesus by Strauss or even in Schleimacher, they want that text to sort of open up new worlds to them because they realize that that's what texts do. But they do it without a particular doctrine of authority of that text, which, you know, is, is I think, profoundly compelling in its own way when the closest that Bart gets to it is that that the Jesus is the word and the Bible is bears witness to the word, you know, he never, you know, really that I know of, you know, I mean, it's revelatory, but when you're reading Romans, um, Bart is the, the Bart's commentary to the Romans, Bart is positively hallucinatory in that thing. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's terrific stuff. It, it, it just keeps cracking open sort of existence in new ways. So they're willing to sort of go back and, and look at biblical text as a text that is able to open up to us new worlds um, and to try to, to break open um, 
And, and in their own, they're like Luther in this way, sort of break open that, that crust that has sort of evolved around that text through centuries of, of um, theological conditioning. And they, really, yeah. and they find new things there. It's really interesting. I just interviewed Rob Bell, and he has a new book coming out. about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, I really liked it. But it's, you have this kind of sense like that. I mean, he spends very little time. There's like two chapters on, you know, authority and, and inspiration. They're at the end, and they're very short. But most of the time, he's just reading the Bible. It's a homiletical sort of book. It's very compelling. And it reminded me in some ways of this kind of energy and passion both, you know, young Bart and Bonhoeffer had. I mean, t- today, I, I, I just think it, it's strange to say that in a nation where so many people still identify in some way as Christian, that the Bible is just so utterly neglected. Well, it, worse than neglected, it's domesticated. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that it's hard for us to read anything in there that we haven't already pre-assumed um, is going to be there. So it, it, in some senses, it's lost its ability to shock us. Right? But America's being made great again, and we can say Merry Christmas. So I'm sure this is going to change. Well, okay. So in this, this <laughs> so if you don't mind my sort of moving the, the, the conversation a little bit. So this is when Bonhoeffer starts to talk about religionless Christianity, which is the title of the book, right? Yeah. When Bonhoeffer talks about this, he is addressing, and I, look, religion is a category that has been incredibly contested in the academy, there are just so many debates on what, what what religion means. So let's not define that. But but for the purposes of shorthanding, buy the book and you can read more. But for the purposes of shorthanding it for just a second, um, religion is that construction of human beings that takes all of the contingent, historical, transitory things that we have created ourselves and roots it in the transcendent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, so that the divine right of Kings, for instance, you know, the King, you know, that we, we structure these things to say their origin, their RK is in, is in the heavens or in the transcendent realm. Religion is that structure that we have created that takes these transitory things and roots them in eternity, so to speak. Yeah, like if you're reading Karl Barth in, in Churchill Max 1-2, it almost sounds like religion isn't the product of revelation. It's what happens in the absence of it. <laughs> you know, when there's no, when God isn't, you know, coming to us, we sort of have to do something in in, in, in between times, and we sort of build these, our, our own stairways to heaven. Yeah, yeah. You know, now the, the thing, the tricky question then, and, and I don't, necessarily want to deal with this today is 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 um is what is revelation but but let me go back for just a minute to the religion piece bonhoeffer sees clearly that religion um in his world functions as civil religion yeah as as that which through time through history through the christian tradition has come to be the supporter of the state you know the 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 connection uh, in Germany between church and state is far more um, uh, uh, connected. Um, I'm I'm being uh, inelegant here, but is far more joined together than we have in American Christianity. So it's hard to understand that people pay their taxes to support the state church. But so bon- I, I have a friend who said uh, a guy who was lecturing at Princeton Seminary from Germany. He said that. 
He had a friend who was a new Lutheran, a state pastor in a small village, and you know, almost no one goes to church. And a woman greeted him on arriving at his first call and said, uh, it's good to see you. You're like the fireman. I hope we never need you, but it's good to know you're here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, so with, re- yeah, that's great. With religion, sort of as that justification or legitimation for the social order, um, that's one of the things that helps to domesticate the text, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because in some senses, we we never break out of that social condition. We never break out of the social order to ask the kind of radical questions that the text invites us or confronts us to ask. Like, who do we give our allegiance to in the midst of um, the political back and forth of a particular uh, cultural location. And this is not just for Americans. This is, this is for everybody. You know, where do our primary allegiances rest? You know, what do we give our primary efforts for? What do we hope to do or, or engage in to uh, enable the reign of God to be manifest on the planet? And this is present in all theologies at all times. But Bonhoeffer, I think, has the clarity of vision to say that religion is part of the problem, even to the point where he says Christianity in its religious guise is is at the center of of our inability to discern the times. You know, and that's and that's a fundamentally Christological commitment, right? Like it, it, this is kind of you almost see this, you know, early on in the New Testament. It's 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 the tension between Jesus and the gospel and the institutional religion that stifles. Yeah. People's lives very often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Whole whole thing that, that I want to go down there, but I'm, I'm sort of struck with, and, and let's just use a contemporary example. Uh, Mr. Trump is going to give the commencement speech at Liberty Baptist this Saturday. Um, <laughs> Two Corinthians. And, uh, and, and uh, um, I just sort of despair for my fundamentalist brothers and sisters that they would be so seduced by power or so seduced by the fact that power could get them what they wanted um, or could engage in creating the world to make it the way that they wanted it to be, um, that they have they have sort of slipped loose from, I think, uh, uh, understanding of the gospel um, in its most radical forms, um, that Christ dies for all. Um all right, so that God enters into the embodiment of the world to suffer with the world is not, I think, what they'll hear on Saturday. Yeah, only yeah. the suffering God can help, right? Yeah, only the suffering God can help. And one of the things, I'm going to go ahead and just make a personal testimony here. One of the things that Bonhoeffer, for ever since I've sort of been working with him, has, has done for my theology— is it's put suffering at the very center of my theology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Bonhoeffer says, look, all those theological ideas that we have about God, omnipotence and omniscience and all of that, that's not God. All of the doctrines and stuff that we have, you know, maybe we ought to think clearly or, or differently about those. You know, God is not the idea. God is the reality and makes itself, makes God self manifest in, in concrete reality. And for him, Christ is the sort of uh, the center point for that. 
But but one of the things that Bonhoeffer never loses sight of is suffering. And you know, I can we can go back and we can do sort of theology from you know womenist, feminist, liberationist, um, Asian. We can do theology from whatever social location we're doing our theology from. But if our theology doesn't address human suffering, then I'm, I sort of understand why the nuns and the duns don't want to have anything to do with us, because that is the one universal aspect of human existence. And if we can't address that in its concrete reality, then theology has nothing to say to the world. Yeah, and is the problem with the God, thinking of God kind of largely in the omnis, is it really just like, it's really like talking about ourselves, right? Well, we're, we're vulnerable, so let's make God omnipotent. We're we we're limited in our knowledge. We'll make God omniscient. I mean, it it is a weird sort of like photo negative. Like it it, it it still is sort of anthropologically grounded in a weird way. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's two sides to that, right? Because you know, in one way, the the all of those things that we take power, knowledge. Let's just take those two, and then we absolutize those, right, right, into omnipotence and omniscience because we have limited power and knowledge. God must, you know, so we're creating through our metaphysical abstractions um, a, a concept or an idea. But you know, Nietzsche could come back and and argue to Bonhoeffer, "You're doing the very same thing." You're weak and powerless in the world, and so you are making God weak and powerless in the world as well. And and Bonhoeffer, by his understanding of the powerlessness of God and by the, only the suffering God can help, um, Bonhoeffer is indicating that through the embrace of that, there is a different kind of power yeah. that makes itself manifest in the world, um, and that power— uh, is not necessarily rooted in a sort of, oh, poor me, I'm a worm, I'm a slave, you know, that kind of slave mentality that Nietzsche rightly mm-hmm. criticizes. Um, Bonhoeffer is saying that an embrace of the powerlessness of God means that something new is unleashed in the world that the world itself does not know how to deal with, you know? Doesn't, doesn't Bonhoeffer say, that it might be in letters and papers, I'm trying to think where that basically godlessness, the possibility for godlessness, like to be able to live in the world come of age without God, we wouldn't expect anything different, right, than that from a creator that allowed himself to be pushed out and crucified outside the camp, outside the walls. Yeah. So there's something about like a cruciform creator that actually would allow us to live in the world come of age. Yes, if we take that seriously, um, then we live in the world, Bonhoeffer says, um, as, if there, as if there were no God. Yeah. Now, can I ask you, like, just uh, 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 what you know? We've seen some popular revivals. Like Eric Metaxas wrote a book about Bonhoeffer, and we see people occasionally. But uh, why isn't Bonhoeffer more widely read? Do you think? I mean, like, I mean, it, it is, in, in some ways he is, but like, you would think that a, a theologian that is such so ahead of ahead of his time, and yet now also has seen the signs of the times. I mean, why aren't why isn't Bonhoeffer read more? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question, right? I, I would like to write the Metaxas book um, because that thing sold gazillions of copies. So, on the, say not the best Bonhoeffer biography in the world. Um, yeah, I'm not going to endorse that in any way, shape, form, or fashion. <laughs> um, I, I would actually say if you want a sort of an, a, a well written and interestingly controversial biography, Charles Marsh um, in his Bonhoeffer book. Strange Glory, you know, uh, captured a lot of attention. Um, 
Now, why Bonhoeffer is not more widely read, I can't, I, I have no idea. I have no idea. Maybe it's, you know, he's not sexy right now. I am going to say that he's a tough read. Mm. Um, when you work through letters and papers from prison, there's just so much in there that, you know, oh, I don't really care about, you know, whether his best friend Eberhard came and they had lunch <laughs> together, you know, or whatever. Um, but the germs of his ideas and the, the he anticipates sort of that postmodern sort of world that we live in. You know, he, he anticipates a, a world where sort of those 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 anchors that you, you talked about uh, don't exist. Um, and, and he's teasing out, he never gets a chance to do this in, in a sort of the way that I would love to have seen. He teases out for us in letters and papers from prison. He talks about his future book of stock taking of Christianity and, you know, what, what a religionless Christianity might look like. He, he teases this out and, uh, you know, that would have been a book worth reading. And it may be that it's a book that somebody's come up with because, um, mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of great theologians now. Um, and from your quote from uh, Paul, I'd like to go back now and take a look at that book. Um, yeah, Paul and Systematics, it's great. It's like 87 pages. I mean, it's a... So you're, you're a scholar of religion and, you know, a, a theologian of the church. Are there places where you see sparks of this religionless Christianity? You look and say, hey, there's something like what Bonhoeffer was hoping for there or there. Mm. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, just sojourners. Mm. Mm. You know, sojourners is, you know, has been in it since the 60s. I remember when they were post-American, mm. um, you know, and all those guys came down from Trinity Evangelical and, they were dissatisfied with the evangelical world and the evangelicals sort of um, uh, uh, love affair with the right wing. Um, even back then, you know, that, that they have tried to create a community of servanthood. There are other communities like that, you know, as well. Um, but there, there are, there are, there have always been witnesses and sparks to this, Um uh, in a more contemporary vein, maybe Shane Claiborne. Um, maybe you see some of this now, a uh, little bit, maybe with the emerging church. I mean, that that's a mixed bag there. But when you go to things like Wild Goose Festival, um, you know, with Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity and, and other people um, like that, you are, you are starting to see a different kind of um, form of the church. I think then then we've seen it uh, traditionally in America, and so maybe that's where the future of the church will be. Um, it will it will rest in those communities, and I'm sure that there are so many communities that I'm leaving out right now. Um, the uh, the Ecclesia Project mm-hmm. yeah. um, and other communities like this who are trying to um, embody and and instantiate a a uh, a community of faith that is servant to the communities in which they live, um, but does not necessarily depend for their existence upon institutional structures. Well, may their tribe increase, uh, and you know, yeah, yeah. hopefully, there's increased graced prophetic imagination. Jeffrey, thank you, yeah. for talking with me. And the book is Religionless Christianity. Everybody should buy it if you're interested in the life of faith in our contemporary moment. Well, thanks so much for having me, man. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. 
They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And do check out Jeffrey Pugh's books, The End Times Theology After You've Been Left Behind and Religionless Christianity, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Troubled Times. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, fare thee well. <laughs>